Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. It's a real pleasure to be able to talk to you this morning on such an interesting subject, and I'm only sorry that I can't be there to present my paper in person. On surveying the considerable body of literature surrounding the history of both the Royal Air Force and the wider UK aircraft industry, it's clear that few of the aircraft that were destined never to enter service have excited so much interest and controversy as the British Aircraft Corporation TSR2. The years following the cancellation of TSR2 in 1965 have seen the appearance of a steady stream of works devoted, either wholly or in part, to the programme's tortuous history. The starting point for many of these accounts has been the release to industry in September 1957 of the initial specification that the TSR2 was designed to fulfil, General Operational Requirement GOR339. Not all assessments of this initial requirement have been flattering. Some have suggested that from the outset, the Air Ministry set benchmarks for the new aircraft that were so demanding as to be unachievable. One author, for example, damned GOR339 as the typical wish list of Air Force zealots everywhere, and it called for an aircraft that would do almost everything except actually travel underwater. The aircraft wanted something that could fly at all weathers, at supersonic speed, at high and low altitude, carry a large payload of tactical nuclear weapons have advanced avionics, have equally advanced reconnaissance capability, like the Canberra's, but far superior, be able to operate from short and even improvised strips, and finally to have a long range. One could almost imagine those air chiefs sitting around, watching an episode of Thunderbirds and exclaiming, yes, we'll have one of those, except that that series still lay 10 years in the future. However, the genesis of what would become the TSR2 programme predates the release of GOR339 by some considerable margin. In order to understand how and why GOR339 evolved and to place the origins of the TSR2 into their proper context, it is necessary to begin in the early 1950s. One of the most important British military aircraft at the beginning of that decade was the English Electric Canberra. The Campbell will come into squadron service this year, forecast the Secretary of State for Air, Arthur Henderson, in his memorandum on the air estimates for 1951-52. And our tactical bomber force forces will in due course be greatly strengthened by the large number of squadrons to be formed on this type. In June of that year, number 101 squadron became the first to be equipped with Canberra B2s, and by 1955 the Canberra had assumed a prominent place in the RAF's front line. A total of 532 Canberras, 436 bombers, 49 photographic reconnaissance aircraft and 47 trainers had been delivered to the RAF up to the 31st of March 1955. Bomber Command's order of battle at the end of November 1955 included 30 Canberra squadrons. Of these, no fewer than 26 operated in the bomber role, the Canberra B-2 and B-6 aircraft having replaced the Lincoln and Washington as the command's cutting edge. From the outset, however, the Canberra had been seen as something of a temporary lead-in for a new generation of medium bombers then under development. In a note presented to the Air Council in March 1949, the then Vice Chief of the Air Staff, Air Marshal Sir Arthur Sanders, suggested that one of the most urgent operational needs that the then unnamed jet bomber being developed by English Electric would meet was that of a high uh, of a jet bomber 
for the training of bomber command crews in high-speed, high-altitude, long-range bombing. Given that no other jet bomber had yet reached the stage where orders can be placed, Sanders saw no alternative to ordering this aircraft if we are to have any jet bombers in the service during the next three years. Whilst hailing the Canberra as an aircraft of outstanding achievement, uh, the memorandum released to accompany the 1955-56 air estimates nevertheless acknowledged that their use by Bomber Command was a temporary expedient pending the arrival of Valiant, Vulcan and Victor. While we build up the strength of the V-Force, the Canberra's are providing a powerful contribution to the capacity of the super- forces of the Supreme Allied Commander Europe to strike back in the event of aggression, the memorandum stated. Moreover, the Canberra's performance had all, almost immediately come into question. Although it had proven remarkably superior to the fighters uh, then in use with the RAF, concern mounted rapidly within the air staff as to its ability to operate in the face of the emerging Soviet fighter threat. In a loose minute dated the 22nd of February 1952, the Assistant Chief of the Air Staff Operational Requirements, ACASOR, Air Vice Marshal Geoffrey Tuttle, spelled out his misgivings on the future of the Canberra to the uh, VCAS Air Chief Marshal Survey of Cochrane. Frankly, I do not believe we will get much operational value out of the Canberra from 1955 onwards, Tuttle wrote. In my view, the aircraft is already outdated, and I doubt its chances of survival in daylight against present MiG-15 opposition. As the Russians get better fighters, these chances will diminish, and I think that there is a grave danger that in 1955 we will find ourselves with a big force of Canberras that cannot operate in daylight against any but the most ill-defended targets. By the time of his minute to, to Cochrane, Tuttle's staff had already been investigating the form that a possible successor to the Canberra might take for some five months. If we need a new, li- new manned light bomber to follow the revised Canberra, and if we were to issue the requirement immediately, we would be unlikely to see it in service before 1958, the then DRA, Commodore Harry Slattery, cautioned in September 1951. As it will take us anything up to a year to clear an OR for the new aircraft, the need for reasonably early consideration is obvious. It was not axiomatic that Canberra need be followed by a manned aircraft. Our policy may be to rely on expendable bombers um, uh, for obvious role for about 1958 onwards, he suggested, and apparent reference to Red Rapier, uh, to the Red Rapier short-range expendable bomber, an operational requirement for which, OR-1097, had been released the previous year. For his part, Slattery believed that a requirement for a manned light bomber is likely to persist for many years, certainly for the limited operations such as those in Malaya, if not for a major war. Even in, even in a major war, a certain number of light bombers might prove extremely useful for the, for the attack of fleeting targets or targets that have to be located by the attacking aircraft itself before bombing, even if we had the same expendable bombers capable of attacking over similar ranges. Working on the first draft of an operational requirement for the Canberra replacement was well underway when, at the end of 1952, Tuttle approached Cochrane with his misgivings on the future of the Canberra and asked to confirm that this was a worthwhile project. 
while accepting that this problem should be tackled over the next few months. In his reply, the VCAS emphasised the need for an appreciation which took account all the developments of which we are aware aware or can envisage, and which made absolutely clear what the aircraft is required for and what weapons it will carry. A final version of this paper was submitted to Cochrane in September. He fed back his views at the end of that month, prior to a proposed meeting between Cochrane, Tuttle and the Assistant Chief of the Air Staff Policy, Air Vice Marshal Walter Dawson, that was to take place at some point in October 1952. This meeting, however, never took place. Though the discussion of a possible Canberra replacement was derailed by changes at the top of the Air Staff. Cochrane retired at the end of October 1952, making way for Air Chief Marshal Sir John Baker to succeed him as VCAS, while Air Chief Marshal Sir Ronald Ivanhoe Chapman superseded Baker in turn as Deputy Chief of the Air Staff, DCAS. It would not be until January 1953 that ECAS-OR returned to the charge. Tuttle informed Ivanhoe Chapman on the 12th of January that Canberra is rapidly becoming obsolescent and for some time now, I have felt the need there was an urgent need to state a requirement for a new light bomber. I say bomber, but what I have in mind is that high performance made of all work, intermediate in size between fighters and medium bombers, which would be readily adaptable to intruding, reconnaissance, night interdiction and other duties for which we have not the resources to, to develop individual types of specialist aircraft. Experience has shown that the light bomber is the common denominator of these requirements that can be made, be the mosquito, to accept a wide variety of roles with great success. If designed now, such an aircraft could be in service by 1959. Tuttle's approach came at an unfortunate time. Responding to rising concern about the size of the defence budget, in January 1953, Cabinet Secretary Sir Norman Brooke launched the first of what would be two radical reviews of the UK's rearmament programme. Although the outbreak of the Korean War had sparked a sudden rise in UK spending on conventional forces, the mid-1950s would see increasing emphasis placed on the development and deployment of strategic nuclear weapons and their delivery systems with the aim of deterring Soviet aggression in Europe. In thinking about your proposals, Ivor Lord Chapman mentioned to Tuttle on the 20th of January, I have to start from the assumption that we cannot plan to develop a wholly new aircraft for the range of miscellaneous duties you mentioned. It is already clear that expenditure on research and development, if it is allowed to rise at all beyond 1953-54, will do so at a far slower rate than has hitherto been expected, and that we cannot now plan to introduce new projects which are not of the first importance. I do not consider that a new light bomber can be regarded as falling within that category or that the radical review will give us reason to alter this opinion. The DCS therefore instructed Tuttle to go forward on the basis that at least until 1960 we shall have to meet what are now known as the light bomber commitments with existing aircraft developed for this purpose. However, Tuttle was not to be deterred so easily. Time delay inherent in in initiating any new project would mean that even if we proceed with OR action now, it would not be until the the end of the summer before the requirement came up for approval, he replied on the 11th of February. 
should approval be granted at this stage, it would be at least another two, two years before the construction of a prototype could begin, while production aircraft, if ordered, would be unlikely to reach the service before 1960. Given that OR action would cost nothing, ACASOR asked for work to, work to go on so that we can have a solid project to consider later this year. By that time, the radical review will have been completed and we should have a clear idea of the relative priority of various tasks. It may well be that we then decide against developing a new light bomber, but at least we'll have, we will have a same basis on which to decide. If we go ahead with the project, it will still be several years before it figures largely in the R&D estimates. In the face of these arguments, either Lord Chapman so grudgingly gave way. All right, he wrote at the foot of Tuttle's minute. If your chaps are sure to work, let them go ahead. In the following month, OR1 circulated a revised operational requirement that placed greater emphasis both upon the aircraft's primary role as an atomic bomb carrier and on night interdiction as an alternative role. Over the summer of 1953, the directorate lies close, closely with the Ministry of Supply in an, effort, in an effort to resolve a number of issues associated with the requirement, notably the ability of possible designs to achieve the performance demanded at both high and low levels without recourse to variable geometry and the practicality of insisting upon a supersonic dash capability. However, this work took ground to a halt in August when a progress meeting chaired by the Group Captain Peter Board, the D then DDOR-1, concluded that this aircraft is likely to be cut from the R&D programme and that no further action was therefore needed. While efforts to frame an operational requirement for a new aircraft to replace the Canberra had stalled, attention had already turned to the possibility of adapting aircraft then already in development to the light bomber role. The first of the, these was a uh, was a thin wing was a version of the thin version of the Gloucester Javelin fighter. In 1953, an operational requirement for a bomber version of the thin wing Javelin OR328 was issued. By, by February 1955, the project had progressed to such a degree that it had been decided to go ahead with a standard of preparation for a tactical bomber based on the thin wing Javelin, restricted to the low level role. However, in its 1955 annual review, the Defence Policy uh, Defence Research Policy Committee (DPRC) recommended that the OR328 should be abandoned, and so on the 11th of April 1956, the document was cancelled. Additionally, during 1955, the Directorate of Operational Requirements were requested by the DCAS to consider whether the Blackburn NA39, a strike aircraft then being developed by Blackburn for the Royal Navy might be suitable as a Canberra replacement. On the 30th of September 1955, a minute from the Deputy Director of Operational Requirements 1, Group Captain Neil Wheeler, summarised the OR staff's thinking regarding the Blackburn aircraft. In the course of, an, of the examination which OR1 is now conducting into the future of requirement for a tactical bomber, he wrote on 30th of September 1955, the NA-39 has received a lot of attention. We have come to the inevitable conclusion that the aircraft simply is not designed for the purpose and could not, 
Without major redesign, be made a suitable replacement for the Canberra. Our major criticism is that the aircraft barely exceeds the speed and target height of the Canberra PR9, and it seems to be seems to us quite wrong to introduce in 1960 a subsonic aircraft that stands no hope of being supersonic. While conceding that the OR staff were still studying the overall problem of the future requirement, we stated that this did not affect the particular case of the NA-39. By the middle of of, uh, 1955, therefore, work on a possible Canberra replacement was in the doldrums. Since 1952, lamented one OR desk officer in August of that year, we have been uncertain of the future of the light bomber concept. Indeed, in Bomber Command, the light bomber concept did not seem to have much of a future. Although the command would continue to employ cameras in reconnaissance and support roles. By the end of 1961, those bomber squadrons equipped with the type had either exchanged them for medium bombers or had been disbanded. Events in the following year would provide an opportunity to, recon- to reconsider the future of the light bomber in RAF service. At the best of the, best of the Air Council Standing Committee, in June 1956, Ivalor Chapman, who had yet again succeeded Sir John T- Baker to become VCS in November 1954, put forward a paper that mapped out a possible way forward for the RAF over the next 10 years. Part of this paper was devoted to the RAF presence in Germany, then designated the Second Tactical Air Force to TAF. At that time, two TAF consisted of 33 squadrons, no fewer than 26 of which were flying single-seat day fighters, fighter ground attack aircraft, fighter reconnaissance aircraft, and two-seat night fighters. Two were equipped with interdictor versions of the Canberra, the uh, BI-6 and the BI-8, and they were to be joined by a further two interdictor squadrons by 1958. Four more squadrons were already operating the Canberra in the photographic reconnaissance role. In addition, a further four Canberra squadrons belonging to and controlled by Bomber Command were deployed in Germany as number 551 wing. The main value of 2 TAF, according to Ivalor Chapman, was its contribution to the the stability of NATO. In its present shape, it could make little contribution in a nuclear war. He saw the growing strength of European NATO air forces combined with the resurrection of the Luftwaffe as part of the rearmament of Germany as affording a, an opportunity to refashion TUTAF into a considerably smaller force made up of strike aircraft with an atomic capability and appropriate supporting reconnaissance forces. Allowing for air defence in Europe to be undertaken by indigenous air forces, particularly the German Air Force, I suggest that TUTAF would be reduced to a light bomber striking force having an atomic capability, together with the appropriate supporting reconnaissance forces. This force would replace the Canberra element of Bomber Command, together with the interdictor and reconnaissance elements planned for TUTAF, but for economic reasons would have to be considerably smaller. I suggest that we might be able to afford a force of, say, 65 frontline aircraft. For some time to come, these would have to be Canberras, but towards the end of the period, they should be replaced by a long-range, strike reconnaissance aircraft capable of operations from small airfields. A vertical vertical takeoff aircraft would be the ideal. 
given that a small specialized force such as it, that envisaged must, if it is to be effective, even as a subsidiary deterrent, be equipped with modern aircraft, Ivan Lord Chapman stated a specific requirement within the period under review for a long-range strike reconnaissance aircraft to replace the Canberra that would also be of great value in overseas theatres, either as a reinforcement or as part of the permanent garrison. Ivan Lord Chapman's paper was considered by the Standing Committee on the 11th of June 1956. During this discussion, the VCS advocated a future TUTAF consisted of just 50 long-range strike aircraft with an atomic capability and 15 supporting reconnaissance aircraft. He further suggested that this force should be based in the United Kingdom in order to save foreign exchange and remove it from more vulnerable continental airfields. The committee concurred, save adding a further 10 reconnaissance aircraft, thereby bringing the projected size of of TUTAF from 60 to 75. Having cleared the standing committee, Ivalor Chapman's paper went before the full Air Council four days later. This agreed to the eventual reduction of two TAF to 75 strike and reconnaissance aircraft while deferring any discussion of where they might be based. In AFL to Air Marshal Sir Thomas Pike, his DCAS, to consider how the proposal put forward by Ivalor Chapman might be converted into operational requirements. And to this end, he submitted a further note to the Air Council at the, of, at the end of June. With regard to TUTAF, Pike expressed some doubt. While it had been accepted that the cameras with the, the ability to deliver the tactical, uh, tactical atomic bomb must continue to provide a tactical strike and reconnaissance element for some time to come, the DCS warned that, warned that it was difficult to say for how long that it can continue to be regarded as an effective tactical force. If operated strictly at low level, he thought they might perhaps do so until the enemy can develop an effective low-level surface-to-air guided missile. At at best, this might be until 1963. A replacement for the Canberra was therefore required rapidly. While a number of alternatives had already been advanced right from designs prepared to meet other requirements, Locating the force in the UK would have a profound effect on the type of aircraft, since the radius of action required would be of the order of 1,000 miles. Pike therefore concluded that this requirement should be met by a new aircraft, which would combine the three roles of tactical atomic strike from low altitude, tactical reconnaissance and air superiority in overseas theatres. But those arguments were considered by the Air Council on the 5th of July 1956, Pike was not there to take part in the discussion. Rather, his place was taken by Geoffrey Tuttle, who had been appointed DCS on the previous day. While there was some debate around the table as to the adoption of existing or proposed designs, including the Blackburn NA-39 and the fighter then being de- designed to meet operational requirement OR-329, Tuttle reminded those attending that the first essential would decide on what we wanted the aircraft to do. He went on to advise the meeting that the air, that air, air staff agreement on the broad requirement would be reached in about three months' time, but it would be two years before a final OR could be stated. Arriving at an agreement on the broad requirement took somewhat longer than the three months estimated by Tuttle and his, di- and his director continued to work on the problem 
in liaison with the Directorate of, Operational, Directorate of Operations during the autumn and winter of 1956-57. During this time, they were also tasked with investigating whether an overseas bomber design could be adopted for the light bomber role. Three existing aircraft were considered by the OR staff. The Convair B-58 Hassler, Douglas B-66 Destroyer and Sud Aviation Vateur, but all were judged unsuitable. Preliminary information was also sought relating to Martin's successful bid to meet the US Air Force's WS302A requirement for a supersonic, supersonic bomber that would fill the Martin B-57 stroke, the Douglas B-66 role, but faster, the XB-68. However, British interest fell, fell by the wayside when budgetary cuts, priority changes and difficulties in developing the navigation system led to the latter's cancellation in January 1957. By March 1957, work had progressed to such a degree that the Director of Operational Requirements was able to forward to the Controller of Aircraft Ministry of Supply General Operational Requirement 339 for a strike reconnaissance aircraft. Tuttle explained the rationale behind the preparation of such a document in a memorandum submitted to the Air Council the following July. The requirements for a new aircraft cannot yet be specified in either in finality or detail, he noted, since investigations have still to be made on the practicality of practicability of combining likely advances in aircraft and equipment design in time to meet the required in-service date of 1964-65. GOR 339 had therefore been intended to cap- encapsulate the broad outlines of the project, even though they, these are still tentative. The intention is that as investigations progress, we shall be better able to formulate a standard OR or a good specification for the required weapon system. Although delayed by the 1957 Defence Review, on the 25th of July 1957, the Air Council approved the, approved the release of GOR 339 industry for design studies without delay. In conclusion, therefore, efforts to determine whether the RAF would require a, an aircraft to replace the Canberra, and if so, what that aircraft should be expected to do and how it should do it, can be traced to the, to the beginning of the 1950s. This process was complicated by shifts in outlook, financial structures, and the rapid evolution of aviation technology. By 1957, the case for a new aircraft to fulfil the strike and reconnaissance role had been, roles had been sufficiently established to enable the release of an operational requirement. Nevertheless, considerable uncertainty still surrounded the level of performance that could be attained both realistically and affordably by the mid-1960s. Rather than lay down a rigid requirement, therefore, the air staff elected to prepare something of a speculative document that was open to further refinement and would stimulate innovation within the UK aviation industry. This document was GOR 339. Thank you.